Father, that's the desire of our hearts. As is so often the case, it's it's easy to say these things and sing them and give lip service, and it's harder to live it out, that you would indeed mean more to us even than silver or gold, that you would alone be our heart's desire. Father, thank you for your rule over us, even our schedules, and uh, even though this weekend has become a bit become a bit scrambled we trust that this is just what you've ordained for our church a time of singing a time to sit together and begin our week in the word together father perhaps there's a home or family or an individual that needs the encouragement of Jill Evans today that wouldn't have otherwise happened we'll trust you with our schedule even lord You are sovereign over these things. Help us to find our rest in you. Thank you for our Bibles. Thank you for the accurate and honest record of those who've gone before us, recorded therein. We commit ourselves now to your word in Jesus' name. Amen. I wonder if you've ever heard of the Bedford Boys. Anybody ever heard of the Bedford Boys? On June 6th, The anniversary will be coming up on June 6th, 1944, as our boys and the Allied forces approached the beaches of Normandy, there were 19 boys from Bedford, Virginia, who were killed that day. One thing that makes it noteworthy is, I mean, it's noteworthy in and of itself, but Bedford is... It's just a small semi-rural community in southwestern Virginia. If you take 81 long enough, almost to, almost to Tennessee, you'll be in Bedford, Virginia. It's a community of 3,000 people at that time. 3,000 people, and they sent 30 young men to war in World War II. And on they lost 19 of their boys. Within three days, three more succumbed to gunshot wounds, and so they lost 22 out of 30 boys in the war. There were twin boys that were there at Normandy, and the one boy found his brother, shot through the middle. They buried him there at the beach. He was the last, his, the, the twin who survived. His name was Ray. He, he, he died um, in 2006, I believe it was, in his early 90s. A community that gave... So Memorial Day weekend is to focus upon. It's to focus upon those who've gone before us, those who have sacrificed for our freedoms. It's not to be confused with Veterans Day, by the way. We don't acknowledge our veterans this weekend. They have their time coming, and we certainly appreciate them. But on Memorial Day, we think about guys like the Bedford Boys, 22 out of 30 in a small rural community that sacrifice so deeply. It reminded me of when I was a little boy in South Chicago in the suburbs and I would ride my bicycle a lot. Do you remember, some of you remember the flags that people would put in windows and they had stars. I always was interested, even as a young boy in the late 60s and early 70s, when the Vietnam War was at its height and um, up and down be a res of our suburbs every so often there would be a home and in the front window or on the front door would be a red trimmed banner flag hanging down and there would be a blue star on that flag. That meant that they had 
a beloved one, a son or a daughter in active military service. I was always interested to see some that had two or three or four blue stars. And then every once in a while, I noticed that a star would go from being blue to being gold. You know what that meant? Haven't got emotional all day. But it meant that they had lost their loved one. They went from active duty uh, to having died in combat. A loved one that they had lost. I was pondering that concept, lost loved ones. And um, in the shakeup of the schedule, um, Pastor Mark was going to do his rattlesnake in the living room last night. He'll do that next Sunday morning, by the way, and I'm going to defer to him, um, even though I'm leaving on vacation after that. Um, I'll be here this next Sunday. I'll just lead the service. Mark will preach on the power and impact of media upon our families. And somewhere in here, we will fit Dr. Shupi as he speaks to the hearts of grandpa and grandma and the powerful influence of multi-generational influence. Um, But I... I was going to end with a strong message that I had on my heart. I was picturing our outdoor chapel packed with people at 11 o'clock today. And I had uh, something I wanted to do. I'll save it for later. It was going to be a decision-making time for our families. And I just decided with the change of schedule and me needing to preach all three services today that um, I wasn't going to do that. And so then my mind began to whirl a little bit. Okay, what are we going to do? It's Friday afternoon. And... um, You know, messages don't just pop out like that. You probably don't. Maybe you do know that. But um, I've actually had probably eight or ten different topics and themes that I've been rolling around in my mind throughout our Christian Home and Family series that I thought are really topics that we should deal with, but we don't have time for them. I've referenced that kind of thing. And there's been one topic in particularly that I thought we need to address before this family series is over. And I just began to be burdened throughout the weekend that this is the direction we needed to go. It has to do with the, a loved one who's been lost. Now, in keeping with the Memorial Day theme, I was thinking in terms of uh, the story of the lost about a one in Genesis. We'll go to chapter 37 first, but I'm not talking about a lost loved one on the battlefield who comes home in a body bag. I thought it was significant in Memorial Day context to reference that type of thing, but that's where my mind got to churning a little bit. How many of our families have lost a loved one and they're still here. But families have been divided because of broken relationships. Maybe you have a prodigal, or maybe the family is divided over, and I often find it's just unbelievably ridiculous, the things that have parted relationships. You go to a family reunion, and you stay on the opposite end of the picnic pavilion. There's, there's that uncle, I don't want to talk to him. Or maybe it's possible that a family member has deeply offended you even hurt you and scarred you. Maybe your entire life identity has been affected by some relationship that's gone awry within the family and you no longer speak, you no longer talk, and it's in a sense a lost loved one. There is a story in our Bible of a lost loved one. It has a happy ending. They end up being restored. And I just thought that perhaps it would be good for some of us to remind ourselves 
of the importance of forgiveness and reconciliation and mending broken relationships within our family to burden your heart. You have a lost loved one in your home or in your family that maybe the Lord needs to burden your heart to step out and reach out to that individual. We're in Genesis chapter 37. You need to realize that the story of Joseph, and that's who we're focusing on today as our example, Joseph is in fact the lost loved one out of the family. He got lost, but then he got found. It's one of the greatest, most compelling stories in all of the Bible. It's not good theology to say that one story in in the Bible is more important than the others, but this story is loaded with so much truth. It begins in chapter 37, sort of begins there, and it runs through almost chapter 50. It's a long section. There are five or six key chapters where the story of Joseph uh, is shared with us, and I want us to focus on this model, Joseph, as a model of a lost loved one. You're going to see as I read in chapter 37, and we lay a context from Scripture of the story that we are dealing with a dysfunctional and divided family. A divided family is what we find. Uh, Let's just remind ourselves that Abraham, in his old age, had Isaac, and Isaac had Esau and Jacob. So the Jacob in the story here, whose name gets changed to Israel, Jewish, is the grandson of Abraham. Abraham is the father of the Jewish Israelite nation, but it is out of his grandson, Jacob, who has 12 sons with four different women. Out of those 12 sons are the 12 tribes of Israel, the Israel that we know today. Let's read chapter 37 because we encounter this divided dysfunctional family, and it's out of this dysfunction and division in the family that they will lose a loved one, not in a body bag, but almost. And so Jacob, Genesis 37, verse 1, lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. And these are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. And he was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Ziplah, Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report to them, to their father. So he tattled. You see what happened? Okay, let's just remind ourselves what happened. When Jacob fell in love to be married, he fell in love with a woman named Rachel. And he loved Rachel. They had a somewhat of a scandalous father, Rachel did, who had an older sister named Leah. His oldest father did a sneakaroo switcheroo on the wedding night and he slipped his oldest daughter Leah in the honeymoon tent after on the evening of the wedding feast and so Jacob without realizing it till the next morning when the sun came up that he had been with Leah all night not his beloved Rachel and so he ended up working seven more years and his father schnookered him out of but God blessed him and all that but that's another part of the story this is you can't make this stuff up it's amazing so Jacob ended up marrying Leah And then he married Rachel, and neither one of them could have children right away. And as is the custom of the day, all right, uh, as is the custom of the day, they offered their handmaids to him to have surrogate children. And Leah's handmaid was Zilpah, and Rachel's handmaid was Bilhah. And so Jacob has children, the 12 sons, with these four different women. Now Leah had children, 
All right? And her firstborn was Reuben. Okay? And so Reuben's going to play a key part in the story here today. What you have to recognize is that Rachel finally had a child. And Jacob is an old man, and, J- and Rachel has a, cho- has a cho- He's getting older, but Rachel has, finally conceives and has a boy, and they named him Joseph. And Jacob loved Joseph. 17 all his other sons, the text is going to remind us in just a minute here. But in the meantime, he's 17 years old. But because of these other women, he has stepbrothers who are pretty much in the same age category that he's in. So they're mid to upper teenagers and they're out watching their sheep. And so the sons of Zilpah and Bilhah are rascallions. And Joseph, probably not very wisely, runs home and tattles to his father about those boys. Let's go back to the text. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Not very wise, probably indicative of Joseph's pure and righteous character, though, and maybe some naivety. Now Israel, that's Jacob's new name, Israel, loved Joseph more than any other of his sons. So he showed favoritism, and this was not wise. Because he was the son of his old age... And it doesn't say it here, but because he was Rachel's son. Oh, by the way, Rachel has one more son, all right? And she dies in childbirth, and that son's name is Benjamin. So Joseph has a full-blood brother named Benjamin. And Jacob loves him too. That's going to play at the end of the story. But when his brother, and he made him a robe of many colors. You remember that robe Dolly Parton sings about it? And, and he made him a robe of many colors. Verse 4, but when his brothers saw that their father more than all his brothers, notice what it says, they hated him. They hated him. This is strong language. And when he told it to his, uh, and he could not speak peacefully to them. So they didn't get along. They didn't speak kindly to one another. There was division in the family. There's jealousy. There's backbiting and tattling. There's favoritism. We just got problems. Now Joseph had a dream and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. You remember that he went on to tell them his dream. We'll skip through that part. He had dreams with two different kinds of imagery where there was bowing down and he interpreted it to mean that his brothers and even his father and his mother would one day bow down to him. So here's this favored son who already is maligned and hated by his brothers and spoken to unkindly and he, in his naivety evidently or in overconfidence, comes in and he shares with them, hey guys, I had a dream last night and you all are going to bow down and worship me someday. That went over like a lead balloon. Verse 10, but when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and he said to him, what is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him. There we go. We got jealousy about it. But his father kept the saying in mind. So somehow Jacob pondered this. He, he wondered about it. Now the brothers went to pasture their father's flocks near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, are, are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, here I am. Joseph says to his father, okay, dad, I'm ready to go. Verse 14. So he said to him, go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron and he came to Shechem. 
I think verse 15 reads kind of funny. And a man found him wandering in the fields, it says. So Joseph goes to look for his brothers in Shechem, where his dad had sent them. He was a wealthy man. He had vast herds and flocks. All the 11 brothers are there tending the sheep. And Jacob wants a report on what's going on. He sends Joseph. Joseph says, I'll go. It's probably indicative of his favoritism and his worry over his son, his favorite son, that he wasn't sent with them to begin with. So he sends him and he's wandering around and he can't find his brothers. And then a man finds him and he's and and a man said they have verse 17. Um, well, verse 16, he said, back in 15, and a man found him wandering in the fields and the man asked him, what are you seeking? Verse 16, I am seeking my brothers. He said, tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, they have gone away, for I have heard them say, let us go to Dippins. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. Now notice carefully what happens. We are now going to have life-changing events go on in the family. Some of you know what that is like. It's going to be life-impacting negative events that happen that will never be forgotten. They saw him from afar, and before he came near them, they conspired against him to kill him. Let's shoot the boy between the eyes with a squirrel rifle and just take him out. And this is, this is a deeply flawed family where hatred burns to the core. They see the young man coming. They recognize his profile. They probably recognize his neon-like coat of many colors. It rankles them. And they are ready to do something about it. Verse 19, they said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Verse 20, come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. And then, they will, then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him and we will see what will become of his dreams. You see, that area of the countryside was filled with crevices and, and, and ravines and dry wells. And so they could kill him, throw him in a well, pile rocks on him. They, he would never, ever be found, ever. And they would make up a story that a wild animal had killed him. Reuben comes into play. Let us... But when Reuben heard it, verse 21, he rescued him out of their hands saying, let us not take his life. Reuben was older. I imagine some of these boys had to, these boys had to be in their 40s at least by now. And Reuben said to them, shed no blood, throw him into the pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him that he might that he might rescue him out of their hands to restore him to his father. So Reuben had a plan, throw him in the pit, forget about him. Reuben was going to sneak back, pull him out of the pit, and send him back home to his father. He had some sensitivity to him. And so they took him and they, it says in verse 23, So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and they threw him into the pit. The pit was empty and there was no water in it. That verse right there has to be something that was burned into the psyche and emotional framework of Joseph the rest of his life. He walks up to his brother. Hey guys, what's happening? They grab him, they throw him down, they rip off his coat, they throw him in this dry pit. He's got to be beaten, heavy hands laid on him. He's down in the pit, bruised up. And the beginning of verse 25 is indicative of the conscience and psyche of his brothers. And then they sat down to eat. Beat him up, throw him in a pit, and then eat a salami sandwich, wash it down with a Mountain Dew. Life is good. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites, the sons of Ishmael, coming from Gilead. Well, this was a caravan of traders. It turns out that they're Midianite traders. Verse 
28 passed by and they drew Joseph up, lifted him out of the pit, sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. And they took Joseph to Egypt when Reuben returned. So evidently Reuben had gone away when he came back. Joseph was no longer in the pit. He's upset. He didn't see the exchange with the Midianite slave traders. And he didn't realize that he got when he had turned his back or when he had gone to tend his business, the brothers sold him for 20 pieces of silver. Reuben returned to the pit, verse 29, that Joseph was not in the pit. He tore his clothes and he returned to his brothers and he said, the boy is gone and I, where shall I go? What am I going to do? What am I going to tell my father? What did you guys do to me? And then they took Joseph's robe and they slaughtered a goat and they dipped the robe in the blood and, and they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and they said, this we have found. Listen, these guys are just dirty to the core. They're dirty dogs for sure. Look what it says. This we have found. Please identify whether this is your son's robe or not. Here, dad, we found this robe soaked in blood. Could this be Joseph's robe? And he jumped immediately to the conclusions that they wanted him to jump to. This we have found. Please identify whether this is your son's robe or not. 33. And he had out torn it and he said, it is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. And then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth, sackcloth on his loins. And he mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him. Can you believe that? They fake this death, they saturate the robe in blood, they pretend to ask, is this Joseph's robe? They give it to their father, they watch their old man father rip his clothes off, put on sackcloth and ashes, he's slobbering and crying into his beard, he's sitting in the dirt, wailing, rolling his head about, and they walk up to him and try to comfort him. It's just just a scenario that is despicable. And all his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted, Jacob did. And he said, no, I shall go down to Sheol to my son in mourning. I'll just go to the pit of the grave, to the center of the earth in death, in mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar and the officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. So to pick up speed, let's just... Let's just put on our Sunday school caps and let's just remind ourselves what happens down in Egypt. It's a wonderful story. You got you to kind of go and personalize it a little bit to realize that Joseph does not know the end of the story. Joseph has been beaten. Joseph has been thrown in a pit. Joseph has been sold. I mean, what kind of a day was it when his brothers threw him into the pit, beat him up, And they pull him up and sell him to slave traders. They put a rope around his neck and around his waist, lash him to the back of a cart, and he walks his way down to Egypt. Maybe he was even put in a cage like an animal. And when he gets to Egypt, remember what happens. God was sovereign over the incidents here. And a guy named Potiphar who was of Pharaoh's court. The Pharaoh was the king of Egypt. He had some governors, some underlings, and one of them was a guy named Potiphar, and Potiphar was a wealthy governor, and he finds Joseph on the market of slave trade. He buys him, he brings him into his home. Young people, there's a really important lesson now that I don't want you to miss. Never in the story do you see Joseph gnashing, losing his temper, being angry, shaking his fist at God, screaming, wailing, Losing it emotionally. 
I don't know if he ever did that or not. I'm sure he must have plummeted in discouragement. He had to. He was human. But everywhere Joseph goes now, you see God blessing him. And so Potiphar buys him, takes him to his palace. And it doesn't take long for this servant boy who begins Eve spreading mulch and sweeping the driveway to surface to the top. And he becomes the number one guy over all of Potiphar's house. In fact, to the degree that it says that Potiphar did not even know what was on his, in his... He didn't know anything about his life. He didn't know how much money he had in his bank account. He didn't know how much gas was in the car. He only knew when he sat down to eat dinner that there was food on his plate. And whatever that food was, that was what he knew. Everything else was under Joseph's watch. He delegated his entire life and work to Joseph. Joseph was that excellent Listen, had Joseph lashed out, screamed against God, lost his temper, been kicking and throwing things, I don't think God would have been able to use him. But there he is in circumstances outside of his control, and the next thing you know, he surfaces to the top. Well, one day, very important to the story, Potiphar had a beautiful wife. Joseph is a fine-looking young boy, young man by this time, probably in his early 20s now, probably several years has gone by. And she's watching this guy, and she wants him badly. She grabs a hold of him one day, and Joseph runs. One time years ago, I preached a sermon called The Theology of Running. There is a theology of running. And it's when she grabs you, the only theology you have at that point is to run, run, run. And he does. What a fine man he is. She grabs his coat appropriately behind. She wails, screams, carries on, pretends that she's been attacked inappropriately. They arrest Joseph. They throw him in a dungeon. And there he is from the master of the household at the peak of his career, thrown into a stinking dungeon with rats and all unspeakable care there. What do you think he's thinking now? God, what's going on? And he had to think that day. Don't you think? He had to think. If my brothers hadn't beat me up, thrown me in a pit, and sold me to the slaves. This is my brother. I'm in prison because of my brothers. Surely he missed his father and mother. He didn't know what was going on back home. He's a misplaced person. He's trapped in human trafficking. But then guess what happens in jail? God begins to bless Joseph again. Again, he's evidently not spitting and gnashing out at the jail guards. He's not throwing his slop food back at the prison guards when they slide it in the slot. He's quiet and he's steady. And the jail guard begins to notice there's something about this young man. And he surfaces to the top. The next thing you know, in the course of time, Joseph is the administrator of the entire prison system. Even though he's inside still wearing an orange jumpsuit. He's running the whole place. And then one day there's these two guys that come along and they work for Pharaoh. And they worked for the king, and, and they had dreams. And Joseph says, well, tell me your dream. And he, they tell him their weird dream about birds in their hats and stuff, and, and he interprets it to him. And he says to the one guy, he says, uh, your dream's a pretty good dream. He said, in just a few days, you're going to get out of here. You're going to be restored to your, I can't remember if it was the butler or the baker. You're going to be restored to your position. And the other guy, he says, your dream's not so good. In fact, you're going to be out of here in a few days, but they're going to hang you. It's over. Exactly what he said happened. They execute the one guy. They, put, they restore the other guy right back to his office of position. And the guy said as they left, By the way, as soon as I get restored back in Pharaoh's, in Pharaoh's court, I'll remember to tell him about you. And it says, it says at the end of uh, chapter 
40, yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. The cupbearer, he forgot him. And there Joseph is. (laughs) And so he spends two or three years in prison when he didn't have to. He didn't do anything wrong. It was an injustice. It was because of his brothers. He's a lost loved one deep in the ground in Egypt. Nobody knows where he is. And then one day, Pharaoh has a dream. Pharaoh has a dream. And it's the weirdest dream. Skinny cows and so forth and fat cows. And it's just a crazy dream. And it bothers him. He's very superstitious. And his cupbearer brings his food to him and he knows something's wrong with the Pharaoh. He said, I have a weird dream. No, well, I had a weird dream. Well, what did what happened in your weird dream? Exactly what I dreamed came true. How do you know? Well, I had a guy. Oh, I had a guy down. I had a prison mate. I had a cellmate. And he says, Pharaoh, with all due respect, maybe that guy's still down in the prison. They go and get Joseph. They bring him to Pharaoh. He interprets Pharaoh's dream. And remember the interpretation of the dream. The dream is that there are going to be seven years of plenty in which if we're wise, we will prepare and storehouse for seven years of famine. And that's exactly what happened. And out of that, Pharaoh realizes that in Joseph, he has a phenomenal young man. He has an incredible leader, a gifted administrator. He recognizes that everything Joseph touches turns to gold. In fact, if you read the details of the story before they're done administrating during the famine years, through Joseph's shrewdness and wisdom, Pharaoh ends up having all the private property and all the barns and all the tractors and everybody in the whole country has given Pharaoh and Pharaoh owns the whole nation by the time he's done. Everybody had to give up everything and they were willing to do it because they were eating Pharaoh's grain. It was incredible. And so then in the middle of the famine, guess what? It's, it's a famine up in Canaan. It's a famine up in Canaan. And now we must go right to chapter 45. And so Jacob sends his sons, because under Benjamin, down to Egypt because they heard that Egypt had some storehouses of grain. Because under Joseph's leadership, they had to put, built huge bunker silos and huge silos and huge, huge bulk storage of grain for seven years. And under Joseph's administration, they were ready for the seven years of famine. And Pharaoh is so happy. He's so happy. And he's glad that, this is gonna, that he's got his man Joseph. And then one day, let's just fast forward. Here comes ten of Jacob's sons. And they come from a caravan and a report comes to Joseph. There's some guys from up north in Canaan. They're starving to death. They're skinny. They're skinny, terrible looking guys. And they're begging us for grain. Can we give it to them? He says, bring them to me. Can you imagine the moment when the brothers walk in and Joseph realizes they're my brothers and he had to leave the room and weep. So Joseph decides to have a little fun with his brothers. I really believe that Joseph enjoyed every minute of the next sequence of events. He figures out from the brothers that they have a, he has a full younger brother named Benjamin. He figures out that his father is still alive and doing pretty well. He decides he wants to move them all down. He does not give away the fact that he's not, he's unrecognizable. They were just probably clean shaven. They were probably bearded. He was probably suntanned. He was, he was healthy and strong. They were skinny and starving. They just, years had, decades had gone by. They had no recognition whatsoever. The, the Egyptian accent and language, he acted like he didn't understand their Hebrew. And he spoke Egyptian. 
Egyptian languages called hieroglyphics. He spoke hieroglyphics. <laughs> Stupid joke, sorry. And uh, they didn't understand his hieroglyphics. <laughs> he puts their money that they brought to buy their grain back in their grain bags, sends them on their way back north. He knows what he's going to do. Then he sends his guard after him, grabs him, brings him back, and then he yells at him and screams at him for stealing his, you don't trust me. I'm, the, I'm doing you a favor, and then you take my money back. And they're totally confused. They have no idea how the money got back in their grain sacks. They have no idea. He's playing games with them. And all along, he leaves... I think it's Simeon he ends up having stay there. He sends the rest of the boys home and he says, you bring your younger brother back to me. They get home and Jacob says, there's no way I'm sending my youngest boy. That's Benjamin. He's the, he's the boy of my old age and I've already lost one son and I cannot risk losing another. Remember, this was Rachel's boy and Jacob really loved him. And he said, there's no way, there's no way. And so it was, I have Duda who goes to his father, Judah goes to his father, and he says, Father, I have two sons, and I'm going to leave them here with you, and I'm going to take Benjamin, and if I do not bring Benjamin back to you, you kill my two sons. I'm telling you, I'll bring him back to you, Dad. We need the food. We're starving to death. They go back down. Joseph plays a few more games with him. They start to leave. He puts his silver cup in Benjamin's bag. He pretends that he's a soothsayer and that with that cup, he can hear their very conversations. They believe him. They are totally confused. They think their heads are going to roll. In the course of all of this, Joseph has heard them talking. And he's heard them say, we should have never ever thrown our brother Joseph in a pit. That was the worst day of our lives. We should have never done this to our father. What is our father going to do if we don't bring Benjamin back to him? And Joseph realizes that his brother's hearts have softened and that they're repentant. And then we hit chapter 45, and I want to just draw a few lessons and only take a couple minutes and we're done of application. How is Joseph a model for a lost loved one? How do we restore with a lost loved one in our families? Chapter 45, verse 1, Then Joseph could not come from himself before all those who stood by him, and he cried out, Make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. One of the awesome moments in all the stories of Scripture. And Joseph says to his guard, clear the room, everybody out, leave these guys here. And he looks at his brothers and he says, it's me, it's Joseph. I'm Joseph. Look at me, I'm Joseph. And he reveals who he is. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him for they were dismayed in his presence. They didn't know what to think and they were so upset they couldn't think straight. Here's a few principles when we've lost a loved one and we want to go after restoring broken relationships, forgiveness and repentance. Number one. Number one, you've got to wait until hearts are prepared. Number one, prepared hearts. It took years. It took years for their hearts to be prepared. Do not give up. 
prepared hearts. Joseph knew that his heart was ready. He could see and hear in the conversations that he could understand that his brother's hearts were ready. And he knew that the time was now to reconcile. By the way, how about that verse in Ephesians 4 that we memorize in boy kind with Sunday school, children's Sunday school, Ephesians 4, 31 and 32. And be kind one to another and tenderhearted and forgiving one another, even as God in Christ's sake hath forgiven you. Is there... Is there anything that you're not forgiving a loved one? Do you know, you do know, don't you, that in the New Testament, there is no permission ever to not forgive. There is no permission in the New Testament to not reconcile when people want to reconcile. And so when someone asks forgiveness, you have to forgive. You have no choice if you're a follower of Christ. There is no permission anywhere in the New Testament ever to withhold forgiveness or reconciliation, no matter how far away the lost loved one has been. So hearts are prepared. The second thing I want you to see is practical. They're in a private room. He seeks private conversation with them. He's in a private room. He says, get everybody out. You know, when you're going to reconcile with a lost loved one, you don't do it publicly. You're going to have to close the door and you're going to have to get with them. And the third thing I want you to see is that there are painful emotions. If you're going to do this, it's not going to be pretty. There's going to be a lot of snot down on your chin. And there's going to be some wailing maybe. And there's going to be crying and tears. And there's going to, it's going to be a difficult time. And you need to go to them and you need to, you need to look at them and you say, look, this is the time. The time is now. And there's going to be painful emotions. But the brother admit that... They- The brothers are repentant throughout the story. We'll not take time to prove it, but they admit that they are at fault and they recognize they should have never done what they did and they are ready now in their hearts. I want you to see in the middle of the painful emotions that Joseph brings out number four, proper perspective. You got to keep a proper perspective because here's what you say, Pastor Van, you have no idea how hurt I've been. You have no idea what that person did to me. It's unspeakable. You have no idea. I can't do this. Well, what unspeakable sin does God not forgive us of? You see, but the, Joseph brings proper perspective. Look at 45.4. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves. He gives them permission to forgive themselves. Because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. Looking back, we can see all the ways that God used this. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are five years yet in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to the Pharaoh and Lord of his entire house and ruler of this nation. So he brings a perspective that only God could. We can't un- We're not going to dwell in the past. We can't undo the past. The feathers are out of the pillow. We cannot undo it. But How has God embedded this in our family story? How is it that God maybe has used this to make us who we are? Let's bring a proper perspective with the sovereignty of God over all of these painful emotions. The fifth thing you see is that pardon is granted. It begins with an unconditional and unilateral pardon by Joseph himself. First of all, an unconditional pardon. He just tells the boys, it's over, forget it. Don't even be angry at yourself. Because God used this, it reminds us in chapter 50 and verse 19 of chapter 50 of Genesis, where that familiar phrase is found, 
where it says, Joseph said, what God meant for evil, excuse me, what man meant for evil, God meant for good. What man intended for evil, God meant for good. How is it that the evil that has broken apart relationships, how can God now use that for good? You cannot undo the past. And he gives him a, a, a pardon. He grants pardon. And it's unconditional. Don't even be angry with yourself. And it starts out. They can't even answer him back. So it's unilateral. It's one-sided. And he offers them forgiveness. Remember that forgiveness begins with a heart. I forgive The heart attitude is what we have to be ready with. I will forgive you. I forgive you. That's my heart attitude. Now, reconciliation has not taken place yet because that takes two people who are repentant to reconcile. Two people for reconciliation. Forgiveness begins with one person and their heart attitude, opening the door to say, I am ready to forgive you. I will forgive you. And in fact, as much as I can in this relationship, I forgive you. I no longer hold you accountable for your behavior. It's not easy. I want you to notice then quickly, verse 14, Benjamin is there. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and he wept. And Benjamin wept on his neck. What a moment. Physical touch. Physical touch is number six. I would like to suggest... That when you've lost a loved one, and figuratively speaking, you unzip them out of the body bag and you bring them back into your life, and you're going to restore relationship with a loved one, that until you hug each other's necks and the tears roll down your cheeks and you're hugging and touching, there is something about finally putting your hands on that person to bring about restoration. And it's possible that you've never been hugged by your dad in your whole life. And maybe you need to go off the end of your hymn. It's not easy. Like I said, there might be snot coming off the end of your chin. But look what Joseph does. These guys didn't deserve this. They wanted to kill him. They threw him in a pit. They sold him to Midian slave traders. He ended up in a pit, in a prison in Egypt for years. Are you kidding me? And he had the ability right then to snap his fingers and every one of their heads could roll. In fact, he could have mummified him and hung him around his room if he wanted to. He could have done whatever he wanted to do. He had absolute sovereign control over these yahoos. Pardon granted physical touch. It ends with personal conversation. Now relationship is restored and there's personal conversations taking place. Joseph waited until hearts were prepared, prepared hearts. He was in a private place with them for conversation. There were painful emotions to deal with, but he brought proper perspective. He granted pardon, physical touch, personal conversation. What do we learn from this? First of all, I've already referenced this. Number one, it took years for hearts to soften, didn't it? It took years for these hearts to soften. Don't give up, people. And you you can't soften someone's heart. Secondly, it took special circumstances to set the stage for this reconciliation. It took the famine, the seven-year famine. It took special circumstances. I don't know. You were blown off for special circumstances with that individual. Somebody's going to get cancer. Somebody's roof's going to get blown off in a storm. Somebody's going to have a bad wreck and be in ICU. You're going to have special circumstances, and you're going to recognize in those special circumstances that hearts have been softened, and now is the time. And the third thing is it takes one person. It takes one person to make the first step of reconciliation. 
Number three is that it takes one person, and that was Joseph, wasn't it? And Joseph was the one who was offended, so the lost loved one in our story was the righteous man. The ones who weren't lost were the unrighteous one. Often it's the prodigal who's lost. But Joseph did what? Joseph reached out to his brothers. He said, today's the day, guys. Today's the day. I want to remind you of one more thing, and then we're done, and that's in chapter 45. Let your eyes go to verse 25. So they went up out of Egypt, verse 25, and they came to the land of Canaan. Oh, by the way, verse 24 will make you smile. So they finally get all loaded up again, and Joseph's going to let him go back to his father. He sends carriages and carts to bring him back in comfort because they're going to set up a whole new home for him. And, and, and in verse 24, it says, Then he sent his brothers away, and as they departed, he said to them, Do not quarrel on the way. That cracks me up. <laughs> okay, boys, see you in a few weeks. Now you guys don't fight on the way home. He came into their brothers really well. So they went up to out of Egypt and they came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob. And there's another moment that you want to be, you want to be a cat in the corner. And they told him, Joseph is still alive. Can you imagine that? Joseph is still alive, dad. And it says, and dad, he's the ruler over all of Egypt. And it says, and his heart became numb. He about had a stroke. For he did not believe them. He hardened his heart. He immediately held them off. No, no, no. Don't you rascal boys. You rascalians. You've lied to me all your lives. I don't trust a word you say. But then they told him, verse 27, of all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them. And when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. And Israel said, it is enough. I have enough evidence. I believe you now. It is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. What a moment. I will go and I will see him before I die. And there's principle number four. You better do this before somebody dies. I'm going to go see this boy before he dies. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know who this message is for. I have to tell you, I, I, was not, I have not been at ease getting ready for this weekend. The whole thing just got discombobulated in my mind because I almost didn't like it. And then the sun's shining and I'm like, you got to be kidding me. And then I just kept my mouth shut because I don't want to talk against the Lord. And, and I really loved the message I thought I wanted to do at the chapel and call our men to stand up. And, and then this forgiveness thing was just rolling around. And so I don't know who this message is for today of the three services. The attendance has been way better than I thought it was going to be today. I'm thinking somebody, somebody needs to recognize that hearts are softening. It takes a long time. Start looking for the right circumstance. Be the one to step forward and do it before something happens and you can no longer reconcile. Jacob says, let's go see Joseph before I die. Got to take care of this. Now, he was just glad to reunite with his lost loved one. His relationship was not broken Joseph was ripped from him. This is not easy, and I know that there are a thousand questions and a thousand different circumstances, but what about this and what about that? I don't know. Let the Spirit of God, through the little voice on the inside, tell you what you need to do. All I know is that if our families are going to be Christ-centered, we can't have lost loved ones in our family. You can't have lost loved ones in your family we're believers in Christ 
And our tender-hearted motto is, and be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. That's our job. So let the Spirit of God use this as needed in your life, okay? Let's stand. Now, Father, uh, thank you for even the change of pace. It's been good to just sing out of our old hymnal again. We look forward to the baptism this afternoon. We look forward to sitting around the tables of eating ice cream. Of all people on earth, Fellowship Bible Church has to say, you've been good to us, Lord. And we'll look forward to other good days in our woods where we love to gather. But for today, Lord, would you help us restore relationships with lost loved ones? Show us how to do this. Show us how to do it with kindness and love and Christ-likeness. And may homes and families be strengthened because of it. And thank you most of all that the Lord Jesus was willing to step in our place and do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves, pay the price of our sin. It's in his name we've gathered, and in his name we go.